some announcements today. A few announcements we have for this morning to be in the book of Colossians still, and we are slowly making our way through chapter 1. Someone said, my goodness, Bob, you're going so slow. We started September, and you're only barely in the 15th verse. But what nuggets of gold and jewels of grace we've mined out of these few verses so far, huh? So we'll be reading beginning in verse 15. Verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Oh, Lord, this is your day, the Lord's day, where we gather to worship you, to lift up your name, to exalt you. And, oh, Lord, we come to one of the highest peaks in Scripture that magnifies you, Lord. Oh, I pray that today that we would ascend these heights with a greater depth of understanding of who you are, And that, Lord, it would change our hearts and our minds. And by virtue of that, our behavior and conduct. Oh, Lord, I pray that as we have a greater appreciation and vision for who you are, that we would love you more. And that we would grow deeper in our commitment to you. Lord, help me now as I preach Lord, to overcome any distractions, to overcome any, Lord, feelings that may come upon me as the enemy seeks to turn me away from your truth, and that you, O Lord, would be magnified here today. Use me, O Lord, as a vessel of honor. Spirit, flow through me, through my mind and my tongue, May you bring glory to yourself, your honor and praise. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, the Queen of England died, Elizabeth II. And for those of you who don't know, she was well beloved. But at the same time now, we are in the midst of preparing for the coronation of King Charles, 
And King Charles will soon, or he is officially the king, but will be coronated. And I was, I was reading recently in the news when the queen was coronated in 1953. Does anybody remember that? Paul, obviously you remember that. Anyone else here old enough to remember when the Queen of England was coronated? I think Paul, my father. It was a long time ago, and it was a three-hour event. 8,000 people were present, 129 nations represented. The pomp and the fanfare of the Queen's coronation was an event that was truly remembered even as um, journalists look back to it to this day. From what I understand, the coronation of Charles will be scaled back quite a bit as they seek to modernize the monarchy. And while we know that the monarchy is insignificant in terms of its actual governing authority in England, there is a sense of tradition and a sense of British culture that still has a great sense of awe for the majesty of the crown. And we don't understand that. We're Americans. Our whole nation was built on the foundation of rebelling against the king. So we don't appreciate it much. However, For those in England, for those who are British, it is a significant event to see the coronation once again of a king. The media and the tabloids and all of British culture takes great interest in it. In a way, I think that it's good for us to see this because it reminds us that there is another king in whom Charles and whom Elizabeth and every majestic royal crown in the world will bow to one day, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true king. He is the king of the heavens and the earth. And that is what we are brought to today. We're brought to this understanding of who Jesus really is. Throughout Colossians, we've been building up little by little uh, to this crescendo. As we start in chapter 1, it opens with a prayer. And the prayer has been, begins with thanks to God the Father and has been building up and seeing how all that is done in us and for us is through the Son. Paul's prayer is for the church to grow, to bear fruit, to increase, to, to um, demonstrate a life that is fit for Christ. And in our last sermon, we saw how Paul acknowledged and recognized that that any prayer for us must be bathed in gratitude to God, for it is God who qualified us for heaven. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, through whom we have redemption. And there's that note there we leave off on last week that we've been transferred, we've been placed into the authority of King Jesus, who is the beloved son. And it's with that Paul opens up into a crescendo and burst of worship here in verses 15 through 20. 
it is such a beautiful passage of Christ-exalting praise that many scholars believe it is a fragment of an early Christian hymn. But rather than trying to see historically if this was augmented into the letter of Colossians, we trust that Paul wrote this under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was writing to the Colossian church. It was written from a man who knew Christ well, from whose whole life was changed by Christ. Paul's writings weren't letters to be studied in a seminar or university, but he wrote these letters to be read aloud publicly in a corporate worship service by God's people. Paul could express his faith with majestic poetry, and yet he could write in everyday prose. He can write as a prophet, he can write as a psalmist, and he's a liturgical master who could soar above the heights of the everyday writer. What we're introduced to in these verses is one of the highest peaks, as I said earlier, of Christology in the New Testament. On par with maybe John chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 1, this passage is stated by John Piper to be the Mount Everest of Christology in the New Testament. Through this passage, we're presented to the Son of God as the supreme, sovereign king over all, both the created order, both the church, the heavens and the earth, the old creation and his new creation. He is presented as both the creator and the redeemer, and he's the one in whom we owe all worship. It'll do us well to meditate on this because what we're doing is getting a revelation of who the Son of God is. Who is the one in whom we are redeemed? Who is the one in whom we have salvation? Who is this King in whom we serve? May God open our eyes. Let's see what the text tells us. Verse 15 tells us He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I want to stop there. I'm going to parse this in two. We're going to see part one, where we see that Christ is presented as the creator king of the universe. And part two, Christ is presented as the redeemer and head of the church. In both functions, we see there, are, there is a parallelism here. Paul sees the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over all spheres of life, both in the church and out of the church. We dare not think that Christ is only the sovereign ruler of the church and that his rule does not apply outside the church. He is the sovereign ruler of all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The first thing we note here is that God is invisible. God is spirit. No man has ever seen God. That is God the Father. He told Moses in, when Moses came up to get the second 
set of tablets for the Ten Commandments, he says, no man shall see me and live. So I shall put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand to cover you lest you see me and die. But I shall let you see my backside. And the Lord revealed himself to Moses. But it was only a portion of his glory. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. But we are known and we are told here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we hear the word image, we know exactly what that means. It throws us right back to Genesis 1, 27 through 28. We are told in that passage that God created man in his image, both male and female, in the likeness of God, he made them. We are made in the image of God. We are his image bearers. Now, the image bears resemblance to the original. There is is a sense where the image represents the object of its reflection. And so we, as human beings, reflect the image of God, and it's not total, it's not... It's not 100%, but there is a sense where we reflect who God is. It's been marred, and it's been distorted and disrupted by sin. But originally, God intended us to be his image bearers, to rule over creation. We see the image of God in in our capacity to understand, to worship, to to rule over the created order, to to have the ability to think and to reason, to have emotions, to relate to one another. Sin ruined it all. The first Adam failed. And so Christ, the second Adam, comes to perfectly represent the Father. Through Jesus, we see who God is. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. He is the perfect representation of God. Colossians 2.9, it says, In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now the word here for image, imago in Greek, literally means exact representation. Now if you look in Hebrews chapter 1, which is, the other high peak of Christology in the New Testament, we see that something similar is said. It says in verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now hold on to that in your mind. The heir of all things through whom he also created the world, and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the exact imprint of his nature, the exact representation of who God is. He is the radiance of, of the glory of God. You see, it's all about origins. Who is Jesus? Well, we need to know where he's from. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 tells us the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
But the second man is from heaven. Jesus came from heaven. He is the eternal Son of God with no beginning and no end who coexisted with the Father in all eternity. No one has ever seen God except the Son and He makes the Father known. John 1.18 Commentator David Garland says this is God's representative and representation. Jesus brings clarity to the hazy notions we have of the immortal, invisible God who dwells in light unapproachable. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God, you look to Christ. He makes God known. And so when we read the pages of the New Testament, we see the life, the ministry, the works of Christ, his death and resurrection. It all tells us about God. It tells us Jesus is also the first born over all creation. Now, now this text was originally used by Arius, who was the progenitor of the Arian heresy, which is what we know today as Jehovah's Witnesses or Watchtower theology. They deny the deity of Christ. It was Arius who originally saw this passage and misunderstanding it in its original Greek language, thought it meant that Christ was one of creation. He was the firstborn of all that was created, meaning that Christ himself is a creature, that he is created. Now, I'm going to show you in a minute contextually how that makes absolutely no sense. But I want you to understand that what we have to see here is the word firstborn, although it is used in its primary meaning to refer to or to uh, discuss something in time, such as the literal firstborn in a family, the word firstborn is also used and is found in many instances in the Greek language, metaphorically, not to refer so much to one who is biologically the first to come out of their mother's womb, but rather refers to one's status and rank. It refers to the one who is the heir. The one who inherits the blessing. Jacob was not the firstborn, literally, but he was the heir. Jacob was the one who had the status and rank as a covenant patriarch. God said of David in Psalm 89, 27, he refers to David as saying, I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, David was the youngest in his family. Firstborn had nothing to do with his his timeline in coming into the world, but it had to do with his rank and his status. He is heir and ruler of all. Now, contextually, we see that Christ can't possibly be created himself Because it says in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. How can Christ be created and create himself? It's a paradox. It says that he created everything. If he created everything, he owns everything. He has a right to everything. 
And he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 just said, he is the heir of all things. He is the one in whom the Father was well pleased to give sovereign rulership over all. In Matthew 10, 28, 19, the Lord Jesus says, All power in heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. There is no authority higher in the created universe. And so he used to be honored and he used to be made a priority. Thirdly, Jesus is the agent of creation, as I just referred to. He is the agent of creation. He is the one with all power and authority. Why? Because he made everything. He created everything. Christ is the one with dominion because he made it. He, is, he has authority because he's the author. He is the author of life. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And what does he create? All things. It's comprehensive in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This is very important to the people in Colossae, because we'll see in chapter 2, these are people coming with a Greek dualistic background. So the material universe is evil and the spiritual universe is good. And so they see anything invisible as being good and anything visible as being bad. And they have this whole Gnostic heresy that develops out of this dualistic worldview. And Paul's saying, listen, Christ made it all. Both the material universe and the spiritual universe. Both the visible and invisible. And everything God made was good. It was sin that ruined it all. It was sin that corrupted it. But Jesus made it all. In fact, we're told here that not only did he create all things visible and invisible, all things inanimate creation and living creatures, but listen to what it says. It says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, this is not referring to the governmental authorities in this world, but the powers of darkness behind the authorities of this world. It's speaking about demons and their host. The Lord created even them. Remember, even the demons and Satan himself originally were created good. We're told in Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer was the most beautiful of all the angels of heaven. He was the music choir director. He was the worship leader of heaven. He was crowned with glory until he, darkness was found in him, until pride was found in him, until corruption was found in him. And he says, I will ascend to most high. I will be like God. He led a third of the angels of heaven in rebellion against God, and he himself was cast to the earth. But Satan did not originate in himself. Christ created him. So much for the Mormon heresy that Jesus and, and Lucifer are brothers. What wickedness, what a lie. No, Jesus created Lucifer. Everything was created for him, by him, and through him. This is a common refrain that exists in the New Testament. It shows the absolute independence and power of Christ in the universe. And again, Greek philosophy comes into this because in Greek philosophy, it is taught that everything in existence needs a primary cause, 
an instrumental cause, and a final cause. Thus, the plan, the power, and the purpose. This common refrain tells us that Christ is the primary cause. He is the one who planned it all. He is the instrumental cause. He's the one, the power to bring it about. And he is the final cause. He is the purpose. He is the end game. It is for him, through him, by him, and to him. It's one thing to be the source of all things, but he's the destiny of all things. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus is all and in all. We can't fathom to understand how big Jesus is. I, I, in my own preparation for this, I was struggling because I I realized how, how horrible my own attitude is towards Christ. That I don't give him the devotion and honor he deserves. We relegate him. We, we have this image in our minds of, of Jesus being the humble carpenter from Galilee and we fail to understand who he truly is as the risen Christ. I fail to realize we need a greater grasp. We need a greater understanding. We need a greater sense of devotion. Whether we understand it or not, Our lives belong to Jesus. Whether you love him or not, you belong to him. He made us and we exist for his pleasure. And that is the purpose in this life, to bring honor and glory to Jesus. You know what sin is? It's the failure to do that. We are also told he is before all things... Verse 17, this is the transition verse here. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means he is, he is before, he is prominent. Christ is at the head. He is, he is the one who is the supreme majesty. He is, he is like King Charles. He sits at the top of the pecking order. But in this verse here, it says, he holds all things together. This is a very interesting statement here. Hebrews echoed this as well. What does that mean? He holds all things together. The word Greek there for hold together is synistomai. Synistomai. It's where we get our English word system from. The word system means it's a set of things and parts or mechanisms working together in an interconnecting network to bring about a process. We think of system, we think of our digestion system. It's a, it's a part of our mouth, our esophagus, our stomach, our intestines, everything working together to break down the food and distribute the nutrients to our body. Or the nervous system that works from our brain that functions to all our body parts that move about and we don't think about moving our arm or we don't think about moving our leg or our eyes. It just happens. It's how the nervous system operates. Our whole body is a component of many systems working together. When you think of how it all works and functions, it's amazing. We look at the greater universe. We live in the solar system. 
where the planets all revolve around the sun in unique orbits and, and, and that none of those orbits collide. They're the mathematical precision of each orbit is unique and perfect and it never changes. If one of those orbits was to change and one planet collide with another, the whole system would fall apart. The earth revolves around the sun. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, the earth rotates on its axis at 14 degrees. If any of that was to change one bit, everything would fall apart. The deist says God wound up the clock of creation and walked away. The scripture says Jesus holds it all together. The reason why your system doesn't just unravel and your whole body fall apart and the reason why the solar system doesn't fall apart and the reason why the Milky Way galaxy doesn't implode into a black hole and collide with another galaxy is because the Lord Jesus Christ who is the system of systems is holding it all together. He's the glue that keeps it all intact and working. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. When we worship Christ, we have to see him as truly the sovereign God of the universe who is keeping all, everything upheld by the word of his power. When you let that sink in, you start to think, how can I possibly sin against such a mighty and powerful being? Now that we see Christ as sovereign over all the created order, sovereign over his universe, now Paul shifts us to redemption in whom our redemption lies, in whose kingdom we have been transferred into. Paul says in verse 18, just as parallel, he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15, in verse 18, redemption, he is the head of the body, the church. Once again, that term firstborn. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. I I seem more sober today, but the subject itself is very sobering. Who is Jesus? He's the head of the body, the church. This shows the important relationship that Jesus has with his people. The church here is not referring to the Baptist church or the Presbyterian church or the Pentecostal church, though we may have our differences, but to the universal church, to all believers throughout all time who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and who are his people, the elect. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of all those who've been called out and gathered together in the ecclesia to worship him. The concept of head has both a a, a metaphorical aspect to it and a literal aspect. The metaphorical aspect obviously demonstrates the organic relationship between Christ and his people. We are in Christ, the hope of glory. Christ dwells in us and we're in him. There's an organic relationship. And with that organic relationship, the, the imagery of the human body comes to show, again, another system. And just as the human body is completely dependent on the head to function, 
right? If you decapitate a person, what happens? They die. You could cut off my hand, I won't die. You can cut off my leg, I won't die. But if you cut off my head, I will die. My whole system, my body depends on my head because it contains my brain, which basically controls everything. Jesus is the brain. He is the center of his church. The church can't function without Christ. You can try to push Christ out of the church, but you don't have a church anymore. He is the head. He is the one who directs the purpose, the function, and the movement of his people. We are told in Colossians 2.19, Paul says that Jesus is the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. In Ephesians 4.15-16, through 16, it says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He is the head of the body, the church. And as such, we find our purpose, we find our function, we find our direction, we find everything we do in Christ. We depend on him, we live in him, we move in him. But head also has a meaning of authority. Christ is the head of his church. No human being in the world can ever claim to be head of the church. The man who sits in the Vatican and claims to be the head of the church is an interloper. He's an imposter. He's a liar. And he's a blasphemer. Christ is the head of his church. He is the supreme sovereign. He is the one who's infallible. He is the one who has the ultimate authority. We don't look to man, we look to Christ. And he has spoken through his word very clearly. It's up to us to search the scriptures. He is also called the beginning, in Greek, the source or origin, Genesis. He is the, the source and originating point for the people. He is the cornerstone. Ephesians 2 tells us the prophets and apostles of the foundation and we are built upon him. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus is the beginning. He is the source. He is the origin of the church. Not Paul, not Peter, Jesus. We owe everything to him. Not only is he the source and the origin of the church, he is the supplier of life to the church. The Lord didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave us as orphans. He says, but I will send a helper, even the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God who comes to us, who cleanses and sanctifies us through the Word of God, who reminds us of the teachings of Christ who equips us and empowers us and enables us to live for Christ so that we may glorify Christ. And he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. 
That's the second time this word use is used. Now, now there's two realities here. Jesus literally is the first one who raised from the dead, right? With a true resurrection. I'm not talking about Lazarus' resuscitation in which he died again. But Jesus rose to die no more. And it was done as the beginning of, of, of a new age, of the church age. That all those who are in Christ have this same hope of glory, who have this hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus is raised, we too shall be raised. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will raise us from the dead. And we will share in his resurrection one day. He's the first fruits of it. He's the firstborn. But one day, likewise, we will participate. But his is the greatest of resurrections because his resurrection has the greatest implications. It is higher in rank. Because of, his justi- because of his resurrection, we're justified. Because of his just- resurrection, we are forgiven. Without Jesus' resurrection, there would be no other resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection depends on Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us Christ is in fact raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and for as by A man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we have this confidence of our own resurrection. But you know, I want you to really grasp your head around something. Looking back, it says in verse... 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to dwell in the human body of Jesus of Nazareth. When Christ rose from the dead, he rose in that same human body. And he reigns in heaven in that same glorified human body. It pleases God to dwell for his fullness, to dwell in him bodily. He is the image of the invisible God. And one day we will see him as he is. Well, actually, everyone will see him. Every rebel, every blasphemer, Every scoffer, every wicked pagan, every man and woman who thumbs their nose at God and says, I'll do what I want with my body, and I'll do what I want with my lips, and I'll do what I want with my mind, will stand before the risen Christ one day. And every eye will see him the image of the invisible God. You see, the Lord's resurrection was a watershed moment in history. He conquered death, he conquered sin, and he leads the charge and he gives us all hope of immortality. He is the first fruits from the dead. He is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. And as a result, he is the one who is preeminent. 
In everything, he is preeminent. This ties it all together. If there's one word that ties this all together, it's the word preeminent. It means that he's of first importance. It means that Jesus is supreme. It means that he is the one in whom all glory and all majesty and all honor are directed. No one else. All of creation and the church likewise owes their allegiance and honor to Jesus. And why is Jesus given such a place of preeminence? Well, we're told, it says, and through him to reconcile himself, verse 20, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, The presence of God was pleased to dwell bodily in Christ and through Christ and through his death and through his blood, he reconciled all things to himself, for himself. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what the great cost was to reconcile us to him. Now, I want you to think about this even further. He didn't have to do it. We're the bad guys. He's the good guy. It is us who needs to reconcile and make peace with God. We're the ones that need to go and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. How can I make it right? But we can't do it. We're not able to do it. Christ's immense love for his people. He willingly came to this world, took on human flesh, not just to walk around and see what it felt like to be a human but to be our sin bearer and to die in our place, to bear the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, to atone for sin, to shed his blood because in blood is life and without the shedding of blood there cannot be atonement. God said that from the very beginning in Eden when he slew the animals to make skins for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain. And his blood covers us. Our guilt and our shame and our sin. And in him we have redemption. You see, our natural state is to be at war with God. And until you come to Christ and surrender, you are at war with him. But I could tell you this, King Jesus will win. King Jesus is letting you know the war is over. Surrender. When D-Day happened, there was an unconditional surrender of the Germans in World War II. The war was over. The Allied powers declared it was over. But not everybody gave up right away. There are some people who said, no, the war can't be over. We're going to keep fighting. And when V-Day, when the war was finalized, Nuremberg held war crime trials. And all those rebels who refused to surrender were brought to justice. And they were killed. Jesus is saying the war's over. Lay down your weapons. I come to make peace with you. And everyone who says, no, I won't, There will be a war trial one day and you will give an account.
How can we possibly reconcile with a holy God? Because Jesus did it for us. He did it for himself. Think about that. It pleased him to do it. Let me conclude today with a few thoughts. This is, this is profound. And I preach a little slower and sober today. Because I want you to take in these truths. These realities of who Jesus Christ is. That you wouldn't use his name in vain. That you wouldn't worship in vain. That you wouldn't sing a song in vain. And that you would live your life in such a way that it's worthy of the Lord. That is the context of Colossians 1. It's to live your life in such a way knowing that Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you. He rose from the dead to promise us the gift of eternal life, to justify us, to deliver us from the power of darkness into the, his kingdom, his kingdom of light, so that we could bear fruit increasing with the fruit of the Spirit, to have a greater knowledge of his will, to be strengthened with the power of his glorious might. When the apostles, Peter, James, and John, went with Jesus to Mount Transfiguration, they went up with Christ in his public ministry. He was in his humbled form. And when they got up there, all of a sudden, the visage, the avatar of humanity was stripped. And they saw the glorious Christ shining with light. And they hid. And the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. My hope is that today as we ascended the Mount Everest, the highest peak of Christology in the New Testament, and we see Christ for who he really is, the Father is telling us the same thing. This is my beloved son. I love my son. Listen to him. Obey him. When you know who Christ is and you know his love, we obey him not because we have to, but because we love him. I pray that this sermon would invigorate our hearts, humble us, that we would take our walks with him more seriously. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. And in him we have everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this word today. Oh Lord, our eyes are dim. Our eyes have been short-sighted. We, we behold only that which is in front of us. Enlarge the eyes of our heart of faith. Help us to behold your majesty, your sovereignty, your supremacy, your glory. 
Oh, may it humble us. May we, like the apostles, say, it is good for us to be here. And Lord, may this moment today where we, we see you and we see you through the hearing. We see you through the hearing of the word. May it enlarge our hearts for you. May it embolden our faith. May it strengthen our weakness. May it give us a greater hatred for sin. May it deepen our love for you. May it further our compassion for the lost. May it provoke a greater prayer life. May it stir up our hearts to have a great compassion for those in our family who don't know you. May it enable us to love our enemies. And may it equip us for the work of the gospel. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are yours. You purchased us, redeemed us. We are We are privileged to dwell in your kingdom. Give us grace to go here forth from this day to bring you the honor and praise and glory that you rightly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.